AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bree Arthur. And Bree was with us, oh, last year about this time, I think it was. Wasn't it, Bree? It and, was. And you are an expert on a bunch of different things, including plant, plant propagation, and um, you're a writer and a speaker, and you're an expert on foodscaping, which I guess grew out of your, your landscape design experience. Yes, it did. Making uh, making it so people in the suburbs with HOAs can still grow food, but in an ornamental way, so that no one's offended. Yeah, that's that's a really hard thing to do with some subdivisions. I, I think some people um, that get on the board of the HOA like to play God or King or something like that. You know, my experience has been that the majority of the time they have never consulted an expert. And it is homeowners who are concerned about their property values. And in many cases, I've had to go and present the designs and really explain the maintenance cycle and how crops interchange and explain, you know, that growing food is is really imperative as our global population increases. And um, as long as you're not putting a wooden box in your front yard, generally the HOAs have understood the purpose and meaning behind a foodscape, which is the integration of edibles in your traditional landscape that you're already cultivating. And that makes a lot of sense. I know it seems like what I've seen most people get into trouble for are you know the things like you mentioned, the big box in their front yard. Even if they have nice and neat raised beds, it's still not a traditional landscape. Exactly. And, you know, what I found from my own experience is that when you put all your food crops in one area, you're just asking for disease problems and insect populations that aren't desirable. Basically, everything that we grow in the summer is all from one family. They're all solanaceous. And in the winter, they're all brassicaceae. So if you're putting them all in one area, you're really increasing the issues that can come up, whereas... If you integrate them in your existing landscape, there's a couple of big benefits. It's already on your radar. It's generally already irrigated, and you're already cultivating that space. So you're fertilizing, you're adding mulch, you're keeping it weeded. And it's the perfect place to integrate edibles. But instead of having them all in one concentration, you can spread them out to a much broader area, and you reduce your insect and disease problems significantly. Now, for people that may be confused and don't speak Latin, um, the two plant families we're talking about are basically the tomato family, which includes tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, potatoes, and the cold crops like the cabbage and kale and broccoli and Brussels sprouts and things like that. That's right. Yeah. Um, and now, when we were on before... You shared how you were doing, you were growing all your own, or a lot of your own food in a beautiful garden that you had in front of your house, and it had all kinds of really cool plants and vegetables mixed in it, and lots of flowers. And this year you did something different, didn't you? Well, I have added grains to my repertoire, and I'm completely obsessed with the opportunity that grains present 
They are so ornamental. I, I've, I've actually been planting wheat and oats in containers now just to flank my entryway at nearly zero cost. You can buy a pound of oat seed for $1.50. They germinate directly in the pot. They grow all winter, and they look like an ornamental grass that's in full flower in April. And I bet your cat loves them, too. Oh, yes. The cats definitely appreciate when they're in the grass stage. <laughs> now, I saw a picture of Cubby Rooster. That's your kitty cat, um, your, your troublemaker kitty cat, we should say. Um, and he looked so sad when you cut the grain down. Do you keep an extra pot of it around just for him? Well, you know, seasonally... It goes, you know, it dries out, it goes to seed, so I can't necessarily grow the wheat and oats all summer long. However, following my, my first installment of the suburban grain experiment, which was predominantly wheat, I followed that with a variety of heritage corn called Bloody Butcher, which you use to make grits, and a cane sorghum that we are going to be pressing tomorrow to make our own source of sugar. And it provided this 10-foot-tall maze for the kitties, and they positively loved it. So I have to do the suburban grain experiment, if nothing else, to provide a playground for the cats. <laughs> do they like stalking through it just like, like our cats do? We have some outside cats in addition to the inside cats. And when the rye was growing up that we had planted, you know, for a winter cover crop, they were just having the best time stalking through that. Oh, it's so much fun to watch them. And, you know, it's really funny. This summer I planted about 300 soybeans in this same space to act as a uh, natural fertilizer source. Because, of course, you know, they're a legume and they fix nitrogen. Well, the bunny rabbits came and mowed all the soybeans down. They didn't eat anything else. And the cats looked like they were having a, a little conference call with the bunnies, all <laughs> sitting in the, in the grain experiment bed. But nobody was chasing the bunnies, and the bunnies every day you could see were getting plumper and plumper. <laughs> oh, that's too much. Now, and, and the cats didn't bother them at all, huh? They just figured it was part of the territory? I think the cats have decided it's not worth their effort to chase bunnies. They're much too fast. <laughs> well, and, and Cubby's put a little bit of weight on him. Um, he has. To, I actually, he's sitting next to me. He wants to be on the interview. It's obvious that he's a media hog. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, I have a video and some slides and some pictures of you, that, and, and some of them include Cubby, and I'll put those up on, on the America's Homegrown Veggie Show website. But now what got you into... Um, what got you into the idea of growing grain? I mean, that's the last thing that your typical suburbanite thinks of. Well, you know, it's the truth. So it, it's, it's a, couple, a couple different elements drove me to grain. I first developed this bed. It's a bed that intersects the middle of my front yard. I've done this as a design element in a lot of suburban spaces that have narrow but deep lots. And the point is to create a road frontage front yard and a private front yard. And so this bed has some, you know, nice ornamental trees, including the flowering apricot and a couple different varieties of maple and a few different oaks. But, of course, my, my garden is only going into its fourth growing season, so these trees aren't providing any shade. And I had originally planted it with pink muley grass, because I love what the pink muley grass does right now. You know, it just is pink and it's soft and it waves in the wind. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I happen to have a site that has a very high water table in the winter when we are graced with rain, which I'm desperate for rain right now. We haven't had any precipitation in four weeks. Wow. But about two years ago, we had a very wet winter, and all of my Lowenbergia died. And, you know, I had spent probably five or $600 um, buying these plants and getting it installed, and I was so disappointed. And I was expressing this to my mentor, Rosalind Greasy, who is literally the lady who started the edible plant movement back in the 1970s. And she said, well, grow something useful. <laughs> That sounds like Rob. That is the very best advice that I could ever give to anyone who's interested in growing plants. Grow what you love and grow something you're going to use. And she told me about how she started growing wheat. And, of course, in her Northern California climate, her cycle is different. But it was her New Year's Eve tradition to gather all of the neighborhood kids and they would make loaves of bread from the wheat that she had grown in her foodscape. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's so cool, because I have all these neighborhood kids now who actually get off the bus and come straight to my yard, because they all want to move malts, and they all want to sow seeds. And, you know, it's really encouraging to see they're, they're genuinely interested, and this is a real opportunity for the schools to tap into the power and knowledge these kids have. And I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to do that. And my friend, Chip Hope, who runs a wonderful horticulture program at a community college in the mountains of North Carolina, grows massive amounts of wheat, grinds it into flour. And I visited him last year after the International Plant Propagators meeting. And he gave me a couple of pounds of wheat seed and said, have fun. It's really pretty. And that's what got me started last year. And, I mean, every day I would go out and, and take pictures. And, of course, I loaded everything to Instagram under the hashtag Crazy Grain Lady because that is what I have become. <laughs> and it's been this wonderful experiment to learn how to grow it, what the cycle is. And I actually learned some really valuable things about the wheat because, of course, we're not mechanized here. Everything is hand-harvested. So modern-day wheat has been bred so that the seed doesn't come out of the chase very easily. So you can't hand-thresh it. You can't beat it. You can't really beat the seed out. You have to really compromise the chase, which is, of course, where the beauty comes from. And I have a friend, Erin Weston, who does Weston Farms, and I know we talked about her last year with the magnolia creation she makes. She was really excited about getting some wheat to add to her autumn arrangement. So we realized I have to grow heritage wheat so that I can beat the seed out and get my get it so that I can grind flour. And she can still have the chase seed free so there won't be any critter issues when she makes these beautiful reeds and incorporates <laughs> it. So I've actually just been placing my wheat seed orders from Baker Creek Heirloom Seed. They have some wonderful varieties that are uh, very easily used for homeowners who don't have combines because, uh, you know, the mechanization is something that you do have to consider with grains. Of course, it's, it's in my experience in horticulture, grains have never been something anyone has even talked about. And I think that the opportunities with grain, especially for new growers, are endless because it's a very little economic input, and you get so much out of it. 
I think people need to start with wheat instead of starting with tomatoes. Wheat is so much easier to grow than a beautiful <laughs> tomato plant. <laughs> no, but then you have to... But then you have to learn to research it and figure out how to get the grain out of there. I remember when I was a kid, we'd just go through the wheat field and rub our hands together, and the wheat kernels would come out. That was back in the days when things were just going over to everything mechanized. My grandfather even still used to size some of the size some of the wheat um, to get some of the harvest before the the. Machine, the man from down the road would come with his big machine. And the machines back then weren't all that efficient either. This is, you know, 60 years ago. So, but, but I think it's a wonderful idea. And when Lamanda Joy was on, she mentioned that with the Peterson Garden Project, they also grew wheat this last year. So I think this is a, a big trend, and, and as usual, you and Roz Creasy are right on the on the cutting edge, aren't you? Well, you know, it's a great thing. You can just call it the bread garden, and pretty much everybody understands then what it is that you're growing. It's amazing to me how people in this day and age can be so far removed from something that is integrated in their daily diet, and I think raising awareness about grains is really critical. Um, and, and particularly people with celiac disease, it's it's being scientifically proven now that the gluten structures of the heritage grains don't have the same effect that the modern grains have. So this is a real opportunity for people that, you know, unfortunately have a wheat intolerance to actually be able to incorporate some level of, of, of wheat in their in their diet if they were growing it themselves or working within a local co-op to grow some heritage grains where the gluten structures are more like what wheat was originally meant to be. We have to take a little break right now, but when we come back, I want to talk more about this whole gluten thing. Uh, We'll be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This week I'm talking to Bree Arthur, who is, Kelly Bree, is there anything that you don't do? <laughs> You're well, a plant propagator. A, a, <laughs> <laughs> and and you, so you've been doing some research on the history of wheat. Now, I understand that way back in Mesopotamian times there were a couple of different kinds of wheat. 
and we've been breeding it. And, you know, what do, what do you think about some of the stuff that's been on the Internet about the, the reason that people are having gluten sensitivity now is because of all the chemicals and stuff that are being used. Do you put any stock in that? I, I know do. wheat wheat typically isn't, you know, isn't genetically modified yet. Um, not like corn and soy. But I kind of wonder about that too. Well, I mean, it's definitely genetically modified in that the gluten structure has been changed. It hasn't been genetically modified as of now to be Roundup resistant, which is really where I think the GMO discussion is it's kind of off off topic, and sometimes I think that maybe Monsanto labeled the discussion GMO just so that it didn't have scientific relevancy. What the real problem is and what people need to be talking about is the chemical culture within commercial agriculture, not the specific genetic modification. And, you know, the use of Roundup or glyphosate, which is, you know, the, the active ingredient in what normal people think of as Roundup, it's really profound, and of course, in corn and soy, it's used throughout the growing season as a as an herbicide. So it's not really impacting the crop so much. And you know, I, I agree with the, the chemistry that it, it it has about a 15 day life cycle. It does break down. It's it's really a high level of sodium that is the active ingredient that that makes it so the cells actually burst during the process of photosynthesis. However, in researching wheat, what I'm finding is that often glyphosate is applied 10, 5 days, 10 days prior to harvest as a defoliant. So oh. that in the combine, it's really just the, the chaff and seed that's, that's being um, harvested. And it's to me, 5 to 10 days doesn't really allow enough time for the glyphosate and the surfactant to decompose. So it makes me more and more concerned the more I learn about commercial wheat production that wheat isn't really at the center of what we're talking about rather than corn and soy. Um, you know, I think corn and soy are grown in excess and often used as byproducts that are unnecessary for processed foods. But wheat, to me, is, is really the crop that's not getting the attention it deserves and really could be grown in more localized systems rather than having all the wheat grown exclusively in the Midwest and shipped everywhere. I'm really concerned about the food miles crisis, and I think now is the opportunity for small farmers and the green industry alike to begin developing plans to see how they can play a role in developing sustainable food systems locally. I would love, more than anything, to see the suburbs as a place where some local food production is, is created and that landscape contractors play a role in that. Now, I don't think the only thing landscapers can do is shear hedges. Like, they're very talented people, you know, working for these companies and running these companies, and food production is something that we all need to be talking about. I agree. You know, there, there are so many things that go into it. You mentioned the food miles, how long it has to go to get trucked to you. Um, I'm very concerned about the chemicals that are being used, in part for the environment. Look at what happened with um, use of glyphosate in Roundup Ready corn and, and soy uh, and, and the monarch butterfly crisis. Absolutely. You know, and, and I can't help think. I did not know that wheat was sprayed with a desiccant like 
cotton it was. So that's a new thing on me. Uh, I can see where it would make sense because they want it to all ripen at once, all dry out enough so that it can be combined. But wowie, zowie, that, that never occurred to me. Yeah, the more research you do, the more startling it is. And, of course, you know, there's a whole range of information available online. I tend to go more with what Extension offers. I don't necessarily trust the results of what are coming out from commercial agriculture producers. But I do think state extension agencies are giving a pretty well-balanced concept of what commercial agricultural practices are. And um, I think when you look at localized agriculture, you're growing in smaller quantities, so it makes it, though even if it is mechanized, it doesn't necessarily need to use the same chemistries that you're using when you're dealing with 100,000 acres. And I, I ultimately think with a, popu- a global population of 9 billion projected by 2025, local agriculture is going to have to play a bigger role in how food is produced all over the world, not just in the United States. Uh, 1,500 miles per product to the grocery store is an excessive amount of petroleum, not just in the shipping process, but in the chemicals that are applied and, and the tractors and, and equipment that are being used. It's simply going to be too extensive to produce food that way for a population that's increasing so rapidly. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and one of the things that had just struck me was the population now versus the population that I learned when I was a kid in school, and how we got so many people on this planet in such a short period of time. You know, because in the scheme of things, it's, you know, it took us hundreds and hundreds of years to get up to the first million, and well, a hundred years to get up to the first million, and then it's increased exponentially. And you know, it used to be that we looked to other countries and said, "Well, they're going to have to do something to control their population," and now it's us; it's all of us. You know, it is, and and we no longer live in a world where you can look country by country because everything is so interconnected. But when you look now that the millennial population, that's ages 18 to 34 in 2015, has surpassed the baby boomers at a population of 75.3 million. And you think about what 75.3 million people can do reproductive-wise, it's going to just be an incredible rate in population expansion. Um, And, you know, obviously, human beings don't want to not reproduce. It's in our biology. But we do have to create systems that allow for healthy human beings to be able to survive into the next millennial. So it's, it's a real struggle, and I think really it's an opportunity for the green industry to start playing a role that's not just ornamental. I, I, you know, I love ornamentals. My whole career has been in tree and shrub production for the sake of it being pretty. But I think this is the time now where aesthetics are taking a step behind ecological and environmental systems and food systems. And plants play the role in all of, in all of those aspects. And we can create environmentally sustainable landscapes that provide food and are also pretty. 
So why not, right? Let's just all get on this and, and understand the role that plants play. And, you know, I think with the millennial generation, I'm very encouraged as they start buying houses and they come to me for design work, the number one thing they care about is what can I get from it and how does this help the environment? And they don't care about it looking like a golf course. That's not the, the aesthetic that millennials are drawing from. And I think right now the horticulture industry is kind of experiencing some, uh, well, you know, as a generational divide. And I've been right in the middle of this. I've been all across the country this summer speaking on foodscaping and kind of getting a lot of negative feedback from some of my elder mentors who are really devoted to the ornamental landscape. And my goal is to sort of bridge that gap. I'm not saying that in every suburban yard needs to look like a farm. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I take pride in that my yard doesn't look like a farm, and I'm still growing 80% of the produce we consume year-round. And when people see the pictures of your garden, it's going to knock their socks off. I couldn't, you know, when you first started on this, I was a little skeptical, maybe, that it could be kept looking good, but you are right, Johnny, on the spot harvesting. You didn't let it go over like some people, you know, they, they do their garden and they kind of just let it go at the end of the summer or when they get tired of it. But you were right up there. And, but it didn't look like you were doing a whole lot of extra maintenance. Not at all. In fact, it's so much easier to keep up with it. And this is where the real advantage of the foodscape is. Because it's not shoved in the back corner of your backyard that you don't notice. You see it when you pull in. You, you get out of your car and you notice things are dry. Or you notice that there's things that hurt and you do it. It's on your radar. And I think ultimately this is where the real opportunity is for landscape maintenance professionals to play a role. I don't expect every individual to learn how to grow food and how to harvest it and how to deal with it. We live in a very specialized society, but this is the opportunity for a landscape maintenance contractor to play a role in making someone's life, frankly, better. I, I have my neighbor I grew up with pays $800 a month for landscape maintenance, and she has two children under the age of three. She said, oh, my goodness, I would pay double if it meant I didn't have to go to the grocery store every week. If my landscape was working for me, I would so happily pay a landscape company to manage it for me. I have my hands full. And to me, I think that speaks to a lot of young people who have full-time jobs, have young families, but want to, you know, live a healthy lifestyle and have access to local food and don't necessarily have the know-how to create it themselves. So I've been trying to work with landscape maintenance contractors to get them educated in maintenance plans because it's no different than sharing your lower pedalums. You have to keep up with your food crops, and it is a weekly maintenance cycle, but they're already doing that. They're just doing that with plants that don't provide you any adventure, any adventure in the kitchen. So I think that I'm, I'm really hopeful that as more millennials buy houses, there's going to be a greater demand. And there will be a shift in the green industry. I think you're right. Um, if for no other reason that, you know, landscapes these days, by and large, are boring. Ah. And they're not fun. You know, you, you go through neighborhood after neighborhood, and with the exception of a couple of people who are gardeners themselves, um, you know, you get grass and you get meatballs. Exactly. And that's pretty much it. 
they are. When you when you share, I you know when I used to teach classes on pruning, I always made the point that one of the reasons that lands uh, that landscape maintenance companies love doing meatballs is it in, in topped hedges is because they can come in there with their with their electric machines or gas-powered machines, cut it all down, and in three weeks the plants look like they're having a bad hair day, so you have them come in again and do it. Well, you know, that's the very reason for crate murder. You know, I used to be so offended when people would cut these crate murders down. Well, frankly, I'm still offended. But I had a landscape friend who said, how else am I going to earn money in February? What else am I going to do? I said, well, maybe you could be growing food. You don't have to cut trees in this horrible way just to generate income. It certainly or they could prune it properly. It's, they could yeah, exactly. pencil prune it or something like that. We're going to have to take another little break right now. But when we come back, this is just a fascinating subject for me, and I hope our listeners find it so also. We'll be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bree Arthur, who is, among other things, and we didn't mention this before, but you're a correspondent for Growing a Greener World. I am. Yes, we actually just wrapped the season two weeks ago. And can you give us any hints at what you've been doing over at the, the food farm? Well, our our last our last episode of this season is all about designing the landscape. This is a really great segment where we're actually designing Joe Lample's home landscape, which he's been taking years to develop. And um, it's a predominantly native, woody ornamental native uh, landscape space with lots of hydrangeas and uh, different different trees and calicarpas and just a wonderful range of evergreens and deciduous trees and shrubs. And I'm so excited to see it all put together. And we, we, had, we had a great time with successes and failures. So I think this show will really speak to homeowners when you're taking on a really big project, it's definitely best to consult with professionals. And if you're wanting to get that instant gratification, you need to hire professionals who have equipment. We ran into a couple of snafus where Joe had gotten 
enormous ball and burlap trees and didn't have the tractor power to actually move them. And, oh and so I think it's, it's really a, a great way to demonstrate what, what not to do and why there is a, a professional landscape industry out there to guide you through these processes and make it so that you have successful experiences when you're installing new landscapes. So it's a wonderful time, and I, I can't wait. I think it'll air sometime um, mid-December. And for those of you that have never watched Growing a Greener World, I've been following lots of different gardening shows, especially now that we have Create TV in our area on cable. And out of all of them, Growing a Greener World is the best. It's got the best photography. It's got the best writing, I think. It's got, it got the best stories. I mean, Joe goes around, and, and you and Carl and... Teresa, and you hit everything new, cutting-edge stuff, and environmentally responsible stuff. Now, right before the break, we were talking about about what would homeowners do in getting the green industry into doing that, and I can see so easily how that would fit in, especially if people wanted to grow fruits, either, you know, an apple tree or, um, or some of our natives, like serviceberry. Because while they don't require a whole lot of work, they do require a bit of finesse pruning every now and then. Well, I agree, and I think we can stop the crepe murder and install some more useful trees that enable landscape contractors to come in in the winter and perform as professionals, keeping these trees in shape and making it so that they, they fruit abundantly and you know, I think I've been working with our our Wake County Extension agent, Gina Myers, here in Central North Carolina, on developing a landscape maintenance program for foodscaping, and it's targeted just for landscape maintenance contractors. And you know, we're at the very beginning stages of of really developing this movement, but I honestly think ten years from now, the landscapes of of America are going to be. Um, very much more fruitful than they are in today's society. And I, I think the whole world needs to utilize the sun, soil, and irrigation systems that are already in place in the suburbs. I, I agree with you. If for nothing else, I mean, besides the whole aspect of having healthy food that you know where it came from, but there is just such a satisfaction in growing your own food. And it doesn't have to be a lot. Um but just some of it. I used to do, well, the only thing we'd buy at the store would be meat and, you know, and paper products and stuff like that. And I grew everything else. I can't. I even made my own cheese. I can't do that anymore, but at least I know how to do it. I can teach other people, and I can still grow some of my own food. And I did that while I was working a full-time job. Well, you know, it's all about, of course, being efficient, under, understanding how to make these kinds of food systems work for you and your schedule. And then just understanding it's a supplement. It's not to make it so that you're off the grid, but to make it so that you do play a role and, frankly, that you have some appreciation for the food that does show up at the grocery store. You know, I think too many people are far too removed from where food comes from. You know, I, my neighbor's... My neighbor's kids this summer, we, well, last, last spring we planted potatoes. And then they watched them grow. We harvested them on one of those awful 
mid-June days that was like 104 degrees. Oh, my. And um, then for the 4th of July for our neighborhood picnic, my neighbor's 8-year-old came over and we made potato pancakes to serve to everybody. It was the first <laughs> time he had ever cooked with potatoes. They've always had potatoes that were dehydrated flakes or oh, in a freezer package. Now they come over once a week, which, of course, we harvested 80 pounds of potatoes that 104-degree day in June. They come over once a week, and they get their potato rations for the week, and now they eat potatoes from the actual potato that their children planted, harvested, and are really, you know, are really connected to these, these plants. And now, of course, we're getting ready to plant our next round of potatoes, and they have a whole new respect when they go to the grocery store and they see those giant bins, before they didn't think anything of it. You know, it's just some product that's coming in from Idaho. It doesn't mean anything to them. Now they understand the cycle and they respect it more, and they've stopped buying dehydrated potato flakes, which I'm very that's proud the of. Best, that's the best news <laughs> right there. And, you know, a lot of parents complain that they can't get their kids to eat vegetables, but when I've taught kids gardening programs, the kids just, you know, if they grow it, they're going to eat it. Even if at the beginning of the school year they say, oh, I'm not going to eat that. But once they pull it out of the ground or cut that leaf, you know, we had to encourage kids to just wait long enough to get it in and wash it. Not that, you know, we used anything on the plants that would be harmful to them, but just mostly to let their mothers know that, no, they're not eating dirt. <laughs> well, you know, it's really funny you say that. I, I did a, an edible, well, I did a foodscape project in Glassboro, New Jersey back in May. Mm-hmm. And it was this amazingly talented team headed up by Ahmed Hassan, who was the creator of Yard Crashers, the show on HGTV. And um, this school project has turned into, you know, the shining light of the Glassboro community. They have 150 people on their wait list to help maintain it. And every Friday, they do a vegetarian menu all from their foodscape. And you know what the favorite food from the kids is? Swiss chard. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) I mean, if you had taken those kids a year ago to the grocery store and asked them what green they liked, I don't think Swiss chard would have been the number one plant they had chosen. I'm just so proud to see how the school is developing this program. And they're actually, they have developed a uh, curriculum for their earth science, uh, for their earth science um, program that they use this foodscape as an edible classroom. Every class in the school uses it for, for at least two hours a week. So that these kids have a real interactive experience. They're all growing seeds right now. Many of the seeds I've actually harvested from my own garden and just sent up to them. And, you know, they're just fascinated when I send them a dry sunflower head with all the seeds intact. And then they see how you pull them out and then how you store them for the winter. So just giving them these seed cycles, the children are developing a whole new realm of understanding of what seasonality means. It's not just about being cold in the winter. It's also about a vernalization for the plant material so that it has the ability to, you know, store the necessary sugars to be able to come back and and come back with strength. And I think it's just a remarkable opportunity that I hope every elementary school in this country will take advantage of. It should have never been taken out. 
and it, it should absolutely be part of the curriculum. People need to know how food systems are created, whether they're growing it or not. Everybody has a responsibility to themselves to take health and wellness and apply it to the nutrition that they are consuming. I mean, with a population as big as it is, I don't think that we should really be tolerating unnecessary illnesses that are due to nutritional causes. I definitely agree. And I think that classrooms, that schools that aren't taking advantage of outdoor classrooms and and food gardens are really missing the boat because they can teach on so many more levels, you know, and it's and so many more subjects. It's not just how to garden, but it's how to do the math, how to figure out how to measure to know where to, how far apart to put the seeds or the plants. It's how how to measure liquids um, when they're watering by hand. It's observation. When we were teaching, when I was teaching, uh, the science classes would be out and they would be observing and they would be observing the, the plant growth and measuring it and they would be observing the insects that were coming around. It was just this whole thing and they, in the history classes, researched the history of food. The geography classes researched where these plants came from, these food crops came from in the first place. Most of them didn't know that tomatoes didn't come from here. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I often am caught up in these. Of course, you know, the native plant movement has a lot of steam. They've had a decade of, of building a repertoire. And my often my response is, if you consume food, you eat non-native. So you have to understand that it's not just about where the plant is from, but it's about the function the plant provides. And I've been noticing, like with my neighbor's kids, they've developed a new empathy to understanding people that don't have food security. Um, you know, mm -hmm. understanding, oh, not everybody has a budget to go to Whole Foods and buy food that maybe we can we, we think of as being safer, more organically grown. They have a lot of kids in their classroom that don't have the economic stability to be able to support that. There's no reason that the, the schools can't be providing local organic produce. Um, That's exactly right. And in our area, and perhaps if your extension 4-H'ers aren't doing it there, we have several beds that the 4-H'ers attend to, and then they donate the food to the food bank. And there is so much need. Um, you know, the economy might be ticking up a little bit, but there are an awful lot of people that just don't have much money to go and buy and, and fast food is cheaper in the short term. Absolutely and I think that's one thing that has got to change in our society. Food that is not nutritionally sustainable should not be the most affordable option. You know, Because yeah. subsidi we're subsidizing junk food and then we're going to pay for it in sicker people, sicker kids, sicker adults and that's, that's just not right. Absolutely. And I mean, thinking about elementary school kids, you know, you, you have students who, you know, are, are hyper and they can't focus. And, well, have we ever considered it's the fact that they ate sugar in their cereal bowl in the morning so they have more energy than they would ordinarily have they eaten oatmeal? Um, you know, I think so many of our health problems that we're exclusively dealing with from a pharmaceutical side start with your food consumption. And we've got to get 
people aware of health and nutrition, health and wellness through nutrition, and understanding that like my eight-year-old neighbor, when he eats a meal that has been organically grown here, first of all, he's put out the energy to harvest it and help cook it. So he's automatically not as high energy as he would have been had he eaten, you know, a McDonald's Happy Meal. And, you know, his parents have both mentioned how behaviorally it's amazing to see the change almost instantaneous. And and I, I don't understand how this isn't intuitive for everyone, but my hope is that it's becoming more apparent because people are realizing that it all does start from what your consumption is. And it does. And, and we have to take another break right now, but we'll be right back after this. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest this week is Bree Arthur, and right before we were ta- the break, we were talking about the importance of growing healthy food and feeding healthy kids. But I'm sure that some of you out there have a question, like, Bree, do you have such a huge garden that you got 80 pounds of potatoes out of it? You know, it's funny because everyone asks that. And no, what we're growing on, we have one acre of land. Half of it is a woodland small. So that leaves a half an acre, half of which is turf. So we're gardening on about a quarter acre. The way I grow my potatoes, I edge all of my beds with potatoes in the winter. And then when I harvest them in uh, late May, early June, I replace the potato crops with peanuts, which, of course, are all legumes. They fix nitrogen, and I happen to love peanuts. And they provide that bed edging so that I don't have to mulch excessively, and um, it's really easy to manage that way. Um, wow. I think there's a lot that can be done in front of that compactaholi head. Again, this is using my ornamental landscape and just incorporating food crops in a very ornamental fashion. I never would have thought about cropping like that one after another or using it to edge beds, even though pea vines are very pretty. They are. I guess is is more than what they, and they have gorgeous little flowers on them. I never would have thought about that. And that gets you, you're turning over the soil twice a year. Now you said planting your potatoes in winter. When when do you plant them? For our listeners, you're not too far from Raleigh. That's right. I'm just south of Raleigh. I've actually just started planting. I wait until the potatoes start talk to me. When they start to really develop their buds and start breaking out in my in my bags that are stored in my spare bedroom closet, I, I live in the suburbs, I don't have a, a root cellar to store my vegetables in, uh, when they start growing again, I start slicing and dicing. What I do is I, I cut the eyes off with about an inch of potato meat with them, I let them dry for a couple of days inside my house, and then they get planted in the ground and start growing. And, and um, it's a and simple, easy process. Don't they freeze? Does, does, does your ground not ever freeze? Actually, we, we do freeze. Our ground doesn't stay frozen for a very long time. What I found is that my fall crop you know, will go dormant sometime in January, and I'll actually end up getting about twice as many potatoes off of those 
that I planted September, October compared to the crop that I plant in the spring, all of which go dormant, you know, mid-June. And in the summertime, there are so many little insects in the soil, I can't really over-summer any potatoes in my ground at all. Yeah, those little wireworms will get you, won't they? they that is a marvelous them. idea. I'm going to give that a try. I saved a potato that I was going to plant, and then I didn't. It was getting late in the season, and I figured, eh, eh, eh you know, is it worth bothering? But I think I'm going to bother. <laughs> it sounds like a great idea. It never occurred to me. Now, how much work is it to grow grains? Tell people about about because people just don't grow grains. You know, you, you might have watched your grandparents um, plant carrots or something like that, but not grain. I'll tell you, the grains are the easiest plant that I've ever grown, and I think that's why I'm so deeply in love with them. You know, I've just started prepping my soil. In fact, I sowed oats and wheat today, this morning before our pollen. And all you do is, I, I just sort of turn the soil with a hard rake. I've never used a tiller. And, um, you know, even out the soil, I make sure that, you know, there's some moisture content. We haven't had rain in a month, so I've been running some sprinklers to get the ground prepared. Um, you just basically surface so you can lightly agitate after you've sown the seeds so that there's a, lot, a little bit of coverage. They tend to germinate seven to ten days after sowing. They don't need a lot of fertility, so if you have already a healthy, organic base matter of soil, you're really not going to have to do anything. In my experience, most of the, the grains, well, wheat specifically, oats, uh, tend to grow in the cool season. Of course, you can grow buckwheat and sorghum, um, amaranth, things like that through the warm season. But the amount of effort to grow them is so limited of course, you're broadcast sowing by hand, so you don't want to do, you know, six handfuls. You want to give them a little bit of space, but they just grow so efficiently on their own. I think that a lot of the plants that have been utilized in commercial agriculture are utilized because of their lack of maintenance required. You apply that to a landscape setting where you make sure you keep your bed edges. What I do as these seeds germinate, I do a little layer, maybe six inches wide, of mulch on either on both edges. I don't mulch over the inside because, of course, that's where the seeds are germinating. But I want to make it look clean and tidy, so I do just an edge of mulch. And it's incredible what just a little border of mulch can do for a garden. I often yeah. say mulch and edging is the difference between a landscape and permaculture. Now, love for permaculture experts to just start embracing a little more of the aesthetic because, of course, their practices are so environmentally responsible that I think there's so much to learn from what they do that we've got to just finesse it with some traditional landscape maintenance. I was always amazed by the price difference um, in when homes were selling. When you look at a nicely edged and mulched bed and then a couple of houses down, the house wouldn't sell and it wouldn't sell because it was just kind of messy. You know, the Bermuda grass would creep into the beds and stuff like that. And I would always beg my clients, you know, if they didn't want to do it themselves, hire somebody to do it. And I don't think there was anybody that didn't thank me because the people that were buying the house said, you know, I really like this house because it looks nice and neat. And, and manageable. And, you know, it's incredible the psychology behind 
a landscape that's well maintained, you think, okay, I can keep this up. But once it gets out of hand, it's easy to feel overwhelmed by it. Yes, it, it really is. You know, and, and I guess some people might know that just because, you know, you go on vacation for a couple of weeks and you come back and everything's bleh, you don't even know where to start. Now, tell, how long does it take for oats to produce? Mine around here, they never have a chance to because the cats eat them. Oh, well, yeah. They're containers for the cats. <laughs> well, so oats are a similar cycle to the wheat. Um, I tend to get them in the ground a little bit earlier than the wheat, but it's about five to six months from sowing to harvest when you're growing through the winter. Of course, there's not a lot of development happening January, February, even early March because the temperatures are so cold. However, they're very tolerant. Uh, I, we're always desperate for green grass, you know, in the wintertime. We happen to have a beautiful stand of warm season centipede grass, which is very drought tolerant and it looks great in the summer, but it's beige in the wintertime. And the wheat and oats provide that green in, in January and February that we're just so desperate to see. Um, generally, I sow my oats. I love saying that. I think I posted on Facebook. <laughs> I literally sowed my oats today. <laughs> I sow my oats in, I do around in August, around in September, and around in October. And then, consequently, I'm harvesting April, May, and June. So you're looking at about a six-month cycle with very little maintenance in between. And I like to do these systems now where I'm incorporating some ornamentals and some other edibles that have a highly ornamental function. So I really like what cilantro does in the spring when it bolts, that white flower is mm-hmm. so beautiful. Yeah. And carrots, you know, I've got root nut nematodes because I'm growing on a former tobacco field. I don't get to grow carrots to eat the fruit, or the, the fruit. I don't get to eat the, the root that, that you develop, but I love the carrot flower. So today I sowed oats, cilantro, larkspur, and carrots all in the same bed. And it's a beautiful combination from purple to white to that beautiful beige that the oats turn, all of which get about the same height, two and a half to three feet tall. Um, none really need supplemental irrigation or fertilization during the winter. So it's really you sow the seed and that is it, and then you harvest. It's it's really the simplest thing that you could ever do. I think about the effort I put in towards my tomatoes and growing wheat and oats and sorghum is maybe 10% of what I do to get a beautiful tomato plant. You're not going to give up your tomatoes and peppers, though. I'm not, but I'm going 100% hydroponic for 2016. My nematode oh. issue with my tomatoes is just out of control, and my success with hydroponics this year is so incredible. If, if there's anything, if you live in, a, in a, a small lot or an apartment, I wouldn't even waste my time on growing things in containers. I would go 100% hydroponic. It is the easiest system to maintain, and the, the, it, the growth and, and fruit and fruitfulness is just spectacular. I've never had tomatoes grow as well in the ground as I have in my hydroponic system. We're going to have to have you back just to talk about hydroponics. I, I would I, love that. You're just you're blowing my mind on so many levels today. Um, I know that you're a, a very skilled horticulturist and everything like that, but you're experimenting with just really wonderful stuff. And Shana, 
when are you going to write a book? I have a couple of book offers right now, so I'm working uh, on, on writing a book all about green leaves in the suburbs and a book on propagating the foodscape. So I'm really excited to get to share these experiences with others, and I'm very encouraged that publishers think that there is a, a real interest in this. And, you know, I, it just makes me filled with joy that I can combine ornamental horticulture and the practicality of edibles and, and encourage a whole new generation to, to get involved in gardening. It, it's such a wonderful hobby. Yeah, gardening is a wonderful hobby, and when you can combine it and eat from it, too, I think that's, that makes it even better. Oh, I'm so delighted, Bree, that you're going to be doing a book or two books. I, I think you've got so much knowledge in your head, and I know you go around and you speak to a lot of groups, but you can't get to everybody all the time. Are you going to do more videos, too? I am. I'm actually developing um, a website right now called Breeze Fresh, and it's all about creating sustainable food systems in the suburbs, and we will have weekly video updates on management of foodscapes and what you need to sow when and how to harvest and then how to deal with your harvest. So I'm just thrilled that these opportunities are, are kind of coming together and that I can help usher in you know, new gardeners to appreciate this amazing thing that we are so familiar with so oh that sounds wonderful is the website up yet can i, can I direct yet. them to you or i will debut it i think it'll debut november 1st so i'm working diligently on getting all the content loaded okay and when you do you'll be sure to let me know so that i can share it with our audience right i absolutely will of course we'll have links to growing greener world uh to sure share help encourage people to see the last six seasons of this amazing horticulture program. It is the best. Growing a Greener World is the best show, out, the gardening show out there. I, I just, I'm blown away by it, uh, especially in comparison to some of the other shows that I've always, you know, enjoyed and respected. And, and if you don't get Growing a Greener World in your neighborhood, you can get you can listen to it watch it online or on your mobile device however you want to do it and Bree, that's this is about all the time that we have for this week but i will get those posted pictures posted and they're just going to knock everybody's socks off thank you so much for being with us today oh thank you so much for having me it's such a pleasure well and i hope we can do it again that's all the time we have for today but we'll be back with more America's Homegrown Veggies, right after this. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? 